We are back in Mark chapter 13 this evening. I think it's been a few weeks. Uh, was it maybe before the children's program that we left off in Mark 13? Okay, so it's been a while. Sometimes this passage, it's on page 1010 in the Pew Bible. Sometimes this chapter gets called the Markin Apocalypse because it's a apocalyptic scene. Uh, and this same chapter or, or block of teaching appears in the book of Matthew. Uh, and again, in the book of Luke, that Jesus teaches near the end of his life, looking to the things that are to come. And I guess I'll throw in, since I'm pretty sure I forgot to mention it last time, uh, what we've looked at so far, uh, well, I'll, to situate it briefly, they're leaving the temple for the last time after Jesus' last public teaching. The disciples point out, look at how wonderful these buildings are. And Jesus' response is, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone that will not be thrown down. Okay, that's like, uh, you know, you're walking around Washington, D.C., and you see the National Monument and the Capitol building, all that stuff, and like, wow, look at these great buildings. And the tour guide says, not one stone will be left. That's, you know, wow, this is bad news, okay? Uh, so then they go across to the Mount of Olives, and Mark specifically says, he sat down opposite the temple, Okay, Mark's drawing the clear picture for us. From the Mount of Olives, they can see across into Jerusalem, into the temple. Uh, uh, legend has it that from certain points on the Mount of Olives, you could even see through the door into the holy part of the temple where the priest went through into there. Okay, he's sitting across. So it's Jesus opposite the temple. And they ask him, when will this be? What are the signs? And he begins to teach them. So we need to remember this whole block is answering those questions. When will it be that the temple is destroyed? What will be the signs? And he talked about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, birth pangs, uh, uh, family being turned against each other, being handed over to councils, uh, beaten in synagogues, stand before governors and kings. You'll be, go on trial, all of that. And I don't think I mentioned last time, but Jesus is also foreshadowing in this block of teaching what he's going to go through over the next few days. Abandoned by friends, falsely accused, held on trial before governors and kings, and beaten before the council. So now we pick up in verse 14. Uh, uh, two more things. This is hard going. We're going to look at verses uh, 14 through 27 tonight. This is hard going. Mark says in verse 14, let the reader understand. And yet, ironically, the history of the church is readers not being quite sure what to make of this section. But one thing we also need to remember, if we're going to make sense of this, is Jesus, in the first instance, is teaching about the temple. And the temple was significant not just for Jews and for Old Testament people, but for early Christians as well, more, often, more, more important than we oftentimes realize. So Acts 2, uh, remember after Peter's sermon, there's that little block saying about what life was like in the early church, that they uh, met together, they have things in common, they worship together. And tucked in there, Luke says in Acts 2.46, day by day they were attending the temple together and then breaking bread in their own homes. And in the next chapter, remember Peter and John, when they say silver and gold have I none, uh, but what we have... Uh, uh, we give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Remember when that story happens, it's while they're on the way up to the temple for prayers. Uh, 
maybe I'm a bit tired, my mind's wandering now, but uh, t there's a, a, a perhaps apocryphal story told that when Thomas Aquinas went to Rome, the Pope was pointing around at all the great buildings. It's topical, but, uh, and, and the Pope said, no longer can we say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas' response was, but can we still say rise up and walk? So uh, there's, uh, Aquinas was also critical of the papacy, but um, anyways, uh, back on topic. Then when Paul comes to Jerusalem towards the end of the book of Acts in chapter 21, remember, uh, in order to show that he still a good Jew, uh, James says, says, look, there's these guys under a vow. You purify yourself, go into the temple with them, and you make the offerings on their behalf. So even towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul is still going into the temple and participating in the sacrifices. The sacrifices were not a way to buy your forgiveness. They were a sign that God had forgiven you. And so it's not, I, I guess the difference is really more a Protestant Catholic difference than it is a Christian Jewish difference. Uh, good Jews understood that the sacrifice was a sign just like the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I, I say that because Catholics uh, believe when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're, it's another sacrifice being offered. And uh, Jews like Paul didn't seem to think of the sacrifice that way. It was a sign of what God had already done. And so as a Christian, logically, there's nothing wrong with celebrating this sign of what God had done. So the temple in Jerusalem were very important in the early days of the church. That's where the first council was at. That's where the leadership is at. And so Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed is a major issue for the early church. Well, let's read verses 14 through 27, and then we'll pray. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is the word of our Lord. Lord, open our eyes that we as readers may indeed understand your word, at least enough to know how to live in light of it. Let us not be anxious about things to come, but to stand firm knowing that you are king. Amen. Okay, I'm going to try and say what I think is happening here uh, as best as I can understand it. But first, I just want to say, uh, big picture, this is what's happening. We have a Picture in verses, uh, really verse 4 through verse 23, of the storms of history. 
So if you can imagine a stormy scene, you know, wind, huge breaking waves, uh, uh, you know, deadliest catch type thing where you, you know, 20 foot troughs, that kind of stuff going on. It's the storms of history. And yet in verse 24 through 27, what do we see above the storm? The son of man coming on clouds. And so it's a picture of turbulent history and yet a Lord who rules in power and glory. And so if you get that, history is turbulent and yet we have a king who reigns in power and glory. You've got the big picture. Okay, but let's try now and pick away at some of the details. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, already we need to back up and notice a contrast. In verse 7, he warned his disciples, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay, you hear about wars in Ukraine, uh, in Syria, wherever they're going on, that's the course of history, that there are wars in this lifetime, in this world, um, until Christ comes again. Don't be anxious. The end is not yet. Verse 14, but when you see the desolation, uh, the abomination that causes desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Do you see the contrast there? When you hear about wars, don't be anxious. But when you see the abomination that brings desolation, it's time to pack up and leave. There's a contrast here. What is this abomination of desolation? standing where it ought not to be. If you have the solution, please. No, I, just a second. Uh, this phrase that Jesus uses is, quote, is a quote from the book of Daniel in chapter 11 and chapter 12. I'll read the quote from uh, uh, Daniel 11. I think it's the most relevant. It's in Daniel eleven thirty one. Uh, in Daniel 11, it's uh, 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 visions of these kings that will arise. Uh, then verse 31, forces from him, this wicked king, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay, that's Daniel in Babylon looking ahead to what's to come. Then uh, the other time this phrase is used is not in a biblical source, but in an extra biblical source, First uh, Maccabees chapter 1. And First Maccabees would have been familiar to Jews in Jesus' day, and it also would have been familiar to Christians in Jesus' day. So um, Jerome, for example, I think preaches four sermons around Easter from First Maccabees or Second Maccabees chapter 7, I think, actually. So it was literature that early Christians would have known as well as early Jews. Uh, in First Maccabees 1, it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, which... Um, uh, Alexander the Great conquers this whole region. When Alexander dies, he has no heir, so he splits his kingdom between four generals. You have um, Antiochus and then uh, someone else in Egypt, and it keeps going back and forth in these wars. Uh, Ptolemy, yeah, thank you. I knew it started with a P in there somewhere. But, uh, and then Antiochus the Fourth takes Jerusalem, uh, and here's from Maccabees. On the 15th day of Chislev in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege 
on the altar of burnt offerings. Uh, that's the abomination that brings desolation, is a desolating sacrilege. They built altars in the surrounding cities of Judah. They burned incense at the doors of the house in the street. They, the books of the law which they found were torn to pieces, burned with fires, where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death. They kept using violence against Israel and against those found month after month. And it goes on about horrible ways they killed children and mothers and on down the list. Um, what Antiochus Epiphanes did that Maccabees is referring to is he went into the temple and in the holy place he set up an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed a huge sow on that altar, a, a, a female pig, which would be unclean. So it's the most abhorrent thing you can imagine. And then they start trying to force Jews to fall in line with this worship. And then finally the, the Maccabees, uh, they say enough is enough. And the Maccabean revolt drives the Roman or the, uh, uh, whatever you call Antiochus's family out of, uh, out of, uh, Judea. And they have a hundred years of, uh, of national sovereignty that, that it's ruled by Jews for about a hundred years. Okay, so when Jesus is talking about the abomination that brings desolation, it's not saying exactly that's going to happen, but those are the images in the background. Daniel looking ahead, Maccabees reporting what happened, of pagans coming in with a military, setting up false worship in the middle of the temple. Sorry, I got off my notes. I should make sure I'm covering things. So a century of of self-rule. So it seems likely then that the abomination that brings desolation that Jesus is talking about here in Mark is some kind of military defilement of the temple. But we see a contrast. In the time of Maccabees, when this happens, they take up arms and they drive the invaders out of the land and they have a hundred years of, uh, uh, of peace. But what does Jesus say to do in verse 14? What should you do when you see this happen? Yeah, it's time to head for the hills. So he's saying, be warned. It's not time to head into the city to take up arms, to prepare to fight the Romans. It's time to leave. This is the end. And in fact, Josephus tells us that uh, when the Romans came in in AD 70 at the revolt, uh, uh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, never mind. But Jews did come into the city of Jerusalem is what I'm getting at. Uh, what else does it say in verses 14, uh, or sorry, 15, 16, 1718. Some more advice. Flee Jerusalem. Flee Judea. Go to the mountains. Yep. Don't get pregnant. Yeah, it is not a good time to be pregnant. Sorry? Do it now. Yeah, there's not time to go in the house and pack up. There's not time to head back for your cloak. It's time to get out of the city. Get out of Dodge. Uh, Pray it doesn't happen in winter, because in winter there's flooding and the wadis, the seasonal streams, fill with water. You can't cross them. Okay, there's two possibilities of what Jesus is talking about here, or there's, I'm sure there's more, but two major options that in the history of the church people have seen. One is that what Jesus is looking ahead to is AD 70 when the Romans come in and destroy the temple in Jerusalem and destroy the city of Jerusalem. The other option is that Jesus is speaking in a direct manner about the end of all things when the Antichrist does something in response to that. For my money, the way Jesus advises his followers to respond sound like something he's planning for them to do in history. 
Okay, if the abomination that brings desolation is referring to the Antichrist at the end of the days, what does it mean to get out of Judea? What does it mean? Where are you supposed to flee to? It sounds to me like he's giving concrete advice for a concrete historical situation. So I think in the first instance, what he is referring to is the Jewish revolt that eventually comes in AD 69 and 70. So in AD 69, it's the year of four emperors when uh, I don't know them all. Do you know them off, Austin? <laughs> okay. Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's not important to know them. Uh, not a requirement for elders or anything like that. But I, I know Austin likes Roman history, so I thought. Uh, but it's a year where there's four emperors that keep assassinating each other, coming to power. Um, eventually, Titus comes to power. He comes to Jerusalem. He puts it under siege in AD 70. Uh, there's famine in the land. There's horrible accounts of the cannibalism going on in the city of Jerusalem because they're under siege. And then in AD 70, Titus takes the city, he enters the temple, he destroys the temple, the uh, blocks are knocked down, the whole thing's burned to get the gold off the temple, and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, and Titus crucifies thousands of Jews who were found in the city. Okay, And at that time, people saw it as a rallying cry. They took up arms, we're going to fight the Romans, we're going to hold out as long as possible, and it led to destruction. So I think in the first instance, Jesus is literally warning. He's saying, don't worry about rumors of wars, but an army will come and destroy this temple. And when you see the army encircling Jerusalem, when you see them entering the temple, it's not time to rally to the city, but to flee to the countryside. So in the first instance, I don't think he's talking about the very end of the world, but certainly he is talking about the end of the first century Christians world as they knew it. This is where the council met. This is where the people went up to worship. Uh, this is where Paul longs to keep going back to, is Jerusalem. And now it's gone. Is that tracking so far? You don't have to agree with me on that. That's, I, I'm trying to make the best sense of it I can here, but you don't have to agree with me on that. Um, verse 20 then, but he gives them this reassurance, and it's, it's similar to Isaiah. Isaiah 1, uh, 1 through 39, there's lots of, warnings that destruction is coming through the Babylonians. And then in chapter 40, what do you have? Comfort, comfort my people. That they're saying, in the midst of turmoil, nevertheless, there's comfort. If the Lord had not cut the days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of his chosen people, his elect, he shortened the day. So he's saying, don't, it's not going to be a total, absolute destruction. Then again, he warns us, again, uh, similar to in uh, uh, verse 6, many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Again, he's saying this will be a time when many will claim to be a Christ and, or, or say, look, there he is. Uh, there will be false Christs, false prophets will arise. They will even perform signs and wonders to try and lead people astray. But he says, be on guard. This is not it. Again, Josephus reports a number of individuals claimed to be a Messiah during this Jewish revolt, uh, trying to rally people around them to fight the Romans. Yes. Yeah. Um, even into uh, even into Acts one, uh, after Jesus has risen again, they're asking him, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting something like this. And so he's warning them it's not going to be a political military way that the kingdom is established. So don't get caught up in that kind of uh, militaristic, nationalistic um, uh, stuff going on in the Jewish revolt. Yeah. Uh, verse 23, be on your guard. That's a little bit soft. It's, it's a strong command. Watch out. Keep alert. I've told you beforehand, I'm warning you, people will try to lead you astray. Be on guard. Then we get to this, this, uh, the vision of, of the Lord above all things. And almost every line of verses 24 through 27 is drawn from the Old Testament prophets. So uh, Joel has a vision of the sun and moon and stars being darkened. Isaiah has similar language. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Sometimes when the prophets are talking about this, it seems when they're talking about the blood or the moon turning to blood, that sort of thing. Remember in uh, summer 2020, how bad the smoke was and you could go out and look straight up at the sun and you couldn't see the moon at night. Sometimes when the prophets are using this language, that seems to be very clearly what they have in mind is the armies are coming. There's smoke from the armies burning the countryside and it's covering up all the sun, moon and stars. It's darkening the heavens. At other times, though, it seems to be even more than that, that creation itself is going to be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's a line from Daniel chapter 7, where, again, there's this prophecy about uh, the beast with four horns and then the small horn, all this stuff going on, the be uh, four beastly empires that will arise, and then the Ancient of Days, and then the Son of Man will appear riding on clouds. And it's interesting because in Daniel 7, he comes to the Ancient of Days and is enthroned at the Ancient of Days' right hand. So he's coming, it's, uh, we might say, a picture of ascension rather than return. But Jesus' language here is a little bit ambiguous. Then they will see the Son of Man. Who is it that will see? Is it the sun, moon, and stars? Is it those in tribulation? Is it all people? Who exactly is going to see the Son of Man here? And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. I think his language here, it's, it's a little hard to get a hold of exactly, but I, I think the reason is, is in one sense, the Son of Man ascended in power and glory and is seated at the throne in heaven as, as soon as he ascends to heaven. And so throughout the entire course of the history of the church, this is true, that the Son of Man is uh, ruling with power and glory. And yet, uh, and, and then when the temple is destroyed, Jesus has prophesied this. And Deuteronomy says, if a prophet says something, wait and see. If it comes true, he's a true prophet. If it doesn't come true, he was a false prophet. And so in a sense, even the destruction of the temple is a vindication of Jesus. The temple leadership puts him to death. He says this temple is going to be destroyed. When it is destroyed, it's a vindication. It's saying, actually, that was a true prophet, not a false prophet. And so, again, his power and glory are revealed even in that uh, uh, horrible circumstances in, in, in Rome destroying Jerusalem. But then again, it's still looking ahead even farther to this final day when not only will he be vindicated because of his prophecy, but when all, uh, as Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's, it, it, in a sense, it's a picture that stretches across all of history, or not all of history, but from his ascension in 2,000 years ago until his return. And throughout all that time, his elect are being gathered from the four winds. One day the angels will gather up all those who have 
are still on earth and those who have died in Christ and will all be gathered up. But it's this sort of a trans-historical picture, it seems to me, this language that Jesus is using here. Well, I just want to end briefly by asking, so what? It might be helpful to the church in the first century, but if it's mainly about Jerusalem being destroyed, what does it mean for us? Well, Jesus is interpreting the crises that the church faces in his day in terms of the divine economy, what God is doing, and using prophecy from Scripture. And so it seems to me that he's showing us this is how you interpret things that go on. Okay? You use Scripture to make sense of the world round about you, the crises you face. And you remember that although there's storms and turbulent history, above it all is this king who is enthroned. I think throughout this chapter, and we're going to see this again uh, next week when we come back to this chapter, um, Jesus has what we might call a prophetic perspective. And I think I used this analogy last time that when you look out at the Cascades, they all seem to be flat right next to each other. But then when you drive out Highway 20 and you're in the middle of the Cascades, you realize, oh, this is miles and miles apart, some of these peaks. And in a sense, that's this whole chapter is things seem to be right next to each other. That's all one event. And yet as we live through it, we realize actually there's thousands of years of the elect being gathered together between one verse and another even. Um, So Mark 13 then gives us a framework for making sense of our own day. Jesus warns us, don't be anxious. Watch out. Remember, Jesus is enthroned in power and glory. The elect are being gathered and that all earthly empires are only temporal. They come to an end. Any other thoughts or questions on this passage? I know it's not an easy passage to make sense of. Yeah, Lulu. Lulu. Yeah. And so what you're saying is just that that particular argument could possibly be is one thing that's sort of like well, obviously in our faith, we are either saved more but we're still being saved. So are you saying like in terms of it's not a one time deal that we see um revelation or something? In so in First Maccabees, it's looking back at something that's already happened, and it's saying setting up a false altar in the middle of the temple was the abomination that brought desolation. And in response, uh, it's using the language of Daniel to make sense of what's happening in their own day, um, similar to what Jesus is doing, using the language of Daniel to make sense of his day. Um, I think that it's referring to the Romans entering into the temple and ransacking the temple. I think that's what it's saying, is, is the sacred place is being desolated. Um, and it's an abomination the way that they're treating it. Um, but if the writer of First Maccabees can use that as a way to make sense of his day, Jesus uses it to make sense of his day, I think we can, in a sense, use it as a, as a sort of way to make sense of it's um, the profaning of right worship, uh, you know, t- t- taking the church and turning it into something uh, abominable, <laughs> hated by the Lord. So, so there are things that... Uh, we could, we could apply that and say this is that sort of thing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I would say, yeah, maybe one thing that happened in the past, but can help us make sense of things that happen in the future. Um, we don't really have a place like a temple anymore that what would, what would be the, uh, well, never mind. I, was, <laughs> I mean, the, the Reformation era, it's, it, the Pope is the Antichrist. This is the church being profaned and turned on its head. Um, and so, uh, I mean, Calvin interprets this in terms of AD 70, not in terms of, of Roman Catholicism, but they use that language of Antichrist to make sense of what the Roman church had turned into um, and it really was kind of the centuries right around the Reformation that the Roman church was so awful. And then the Roman church reforms itself as well. So it's not, not as bad as, anyways, that's getting off, off track. I think I saw S- Steve and then Chris. Or Steve, was your hand up? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a, yeah, concern for his disciples, concern for the church preser- being preserved uh, through that. Um, and it is, yeah, Jesus himself is the fork in the road then because he's warning people you can respond and be saved by avoiding this historical event or you can ignore my words. Um, and Ma- Maccabees makes for stirring reading because they're they're revolted by what they see going on and so they take up arms and they put to death apostate Jews, and they drive out the enemies. And that's kind of our natural human instinct, is we see something and we say, let's take up arms, and we're going to make things right, and we're going to win. And that's, uh, it plays to our natural instincts. And so it's, it's a warning, uh, yeah, that don't, don't give in to that. It's probably a good thing that Maccabees isn't in the Bible for that reason, that it, it, you know, we need to not have that instinct fed. Um, uh, yeah, Chris. Yeah. 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 And I, 
I'm not an expert on this, but it seems even from the early centuries, from the second century, Irenaeus or figures like this, you have kind of both lines of reasoning about these apocalyptic texts in the, so throughout church history, you've had kind of people have both sets of views. Um, so we try to keep the main things, this, the big things central, <laughs> you know, the main thing, the main thing, uh, which is that Christ reigns over history and, uh, and try not to, you know, get into uh, physical violence over the details. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, John. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's And that's why some people think why are so many today trying to raise money to build the temple? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it it all gets complicated. Um we we handle some of this next next Sunday with first or Philippians three, um, that Paul. It's interesting because our our presuppositions in really affect how we read things, um, and so um, Paul talks about being a Pharisee, a, or a, Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, um, and we can read that as he's repudiating all that, or we can read it as you know I have good credentials, um, and uh, so we'll actually be talking about some of this again next week. Um, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, they participate in the sacrificial system, and yet it's no longer needed. So it's you know it's fine, but it's not necessary. I guess maybe is the New Testament's all looking ahead to the destruction too. So you don't have any New Testament, in my opinion, being written after the destruction, interpreting it for us. And so that that also makes it a little tricky to. You don't want to put. Yeah, you don't want to overinvest. I mean, it's like Constantine or something like that, or Napoleon. You can interpret them in different ways biblically, and yet. There's no authoritative scripture that definitively interprets it, so we should be careful. Well, we should turn to prayer. That We could get lost here all night. So uh, um, we can always talk over chili, so if we... <laughs>